Um, now, I've said this before uh, to those of you just in conversation, but also I think I've said it from up here uh, and in different ways. But one of the paradoxes of being a pastor, one of the joys, uh, but also some of the sorrow of being a pastor is that sometimes you're asked to be part of really important moments in the lives of people and their families. Uh, a lot of it is really joyful stuff like uh, baptisms and weddings and uh, baby dedications and things like that. But sometimes it's sadder moments like being invited to sit with uh, a family member who maybe you don't as a pastor even know, but they're the family member of someone that you know and love and you're sitting with them in what will be their last moments. Uh, and I've been in that situation a number of times. I've had a few of those experiences. Uh, and, and, you know, as I was thinking about this, one of the things I know is that as the years go on here as your pastor here at this church, that I'll probably spend some of those moments with some of you uh, as the years go on. And so um, what I've found is that those are some of the holiest moments uh, that, that we can experience together as believers in Jesus. Those moments where uh, it, it's probably someone's last day or two uh, are actually really holy moments when they know and love Jesus. And so uh, it's a paradox because you don't want that. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it, it's kind of an honor to be in that room in those moments if you've ever experienced that. I, I remember uh, one experience in particular. I was a worship pastor, music pastor, and, and one of the very elderly members of our church um, had gone to the hospital and it was obvious that this was going to be probably his last day. The nurses were telling us he's probably not going to make it through the night. Uh, he, he had been in the hospital a number of times in the years leading up to this before this. And so uh, I went with the, the other pastors of the church and we were standing around the bedside with some family members and, and the family asked if I would sing some of his favorite hymns. And, and as we did that, uh, we could see his face light up. We could see uh, joy being brought to him in that holy moment. He was singing along in spirit. He couldn't sing with his body because of what was happening to him. Uh, but, but I remember that that was a holy moment that I will never forget. Uh, and today what we're seeing in Acts is, is kind of a, a holy moment in the life of one Christian man who's named in this text Stephen. Uh, and, and so we're going to see basically his last day uh, on this earth over the next week or two. Uh, he's described here as being full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and as I was preparing this week as well, I couldn't help but I was doing some planning, going to have a meeting later today, thinking about uh, the roles in, in our church. Uh, elders, deacons, what does that mean? And having studied last week, the, the institution of what we now call deacons, it's interesting to me this week, uh, sometimes we do a poor job of remembering that deacons are not like second-class leaders in the church. They're full of the Holy Spirit, full of power. That's what Stephen is here. Uh, and so over the next couple weeks, we're going to step into this holy moment with Stephen as he faces this uh, interaction. And so we're going to start today in Acts chapter 6. We're going to go from uh, verse 8 through 15 for today, but then all the way through the end of uh, chapter 7 uh, over the next week or two. And, and it's real interesting if you think about the name uh, Stephen, and those of you with that name, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, that name means garland or crown, okay? And so it's a really fitting name for the person who holds this name in our story. Don't get, don't, don't get too big of a head for the crown because it's your name, all right? Um, but... He spelled it differently. Yes, he spelled differently. So... It means crown, it means garland. It's the, the Greek word that would be used for the award or the reward given for a civic leader. 
Uh, so if you think of old statues, the, the, the crown they're wearing on their head, that's the, the word for uh, where we get the name Stephen here in the text. Or it's the, the crown of glory received by a victor like in the Olympic Games, right? So this is a fitting name for the man that we're going to look at today from the text. It's a, it's a perfect name for this guy who stood really tall on his last day, and he is Christianity's first martyr. That's how we uh, partly remember him. And so his example... It shows us how to, how to die, but also how to live, even in the story we're going to see today. And, and I hope through, through the example and the story of Stephen, we're going to get a really good, clear picture of what a faithful and a faith-filled life empowered by the Spirit of Jesus and walking with Jesus to the glory of God the Father looks like. So I'm going to invite Hannah to come and read the text for us today. She's going to read um, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I can't help but think as we read that text, as I hear it again, people misusing the law and breaking the very law they're saying they're defending in order to get their way, some stuff never changes, right? Some stuff never changes. So that's 8 through 15. Like I said, it, that the story kind of continues, and we'll do that next week. But I want to focus on who this Stephen is in our text today. Uh, we, get to, we begin to get a more clear picture, a more clear description of, of this Stephen right off the bat here in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power... So, so that's his in, initial description here in Acts chapter 6 in verse 8. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And again, remember what he was chosen to do. He was chosen to basically wait on tables, to, to hand out stuff to those in need. But in the economics of the kingdom of God and in the church, that is a position of honor that requires somebody full of grace and full of power. Now, there's another person in the New Testament described this way, right? Uh, and, and of course, we're talking about Jesus, particularly he's described as being full of grace right in the beginning of John's gospel uh, is one of the places. And so what we see is that here in Acts, the author Luke is describing Stephen in a way that is similar to how Jesus has been described, that he is full of grace. Now, the Bible, and particularly here in the New Testament, uh, in, in, when it uses that word grace, it's referring to the unmerited, unearned 
uh, unlimited riches of God that are poured on us in Christ, right? So grace and mercy are nuanced, a little bit different ideas. The, the easy way to describe the difference is simply to say that, that mercy is not getting what we do deserve and grace is getting what we do not deserve. And so in Jesus, we get both mercy and we get grace. But the focus, the point, is the grace more than the mercy, and follow me here. That the point of the Christian life is not the mercy of God, but thank God for it. That the mercy of God, not getting the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, is the pathway to receiving the grace of God. Right? The, the mercy of God is that you're allowed to come to his table. The grace of God is that he's set a table and given you spiritual food. And so the mercy is so vital, but it's not the point. It's the pathway to the point, which is Jesus and his grace in us. And so once God is merciful to us through what Jesus has done, then the grace of God opens up not only to us, but as we see with Stephen here, the grace of God opens up through us to others as well. And this is what Luke, the narrator of Acts, is getting at here when we see Stephen's description. He's full of grace, and then he goes on and tells us a story where we see Stephen's grace pouring out in different ways in his interaction here. And so what we see right here is that God's grace, his riches, flow through Stephen and on to those around him. But if we do a little bit of work on the words themselves, you'll, you'll find out uh, that there's even more to this description than just that. In pre-Christian times, in the world before Christianity burst onto the scene uh, as a Jewish sect with a Messiah, <clears throat> this word uh, came to be, uh, before it came to be so associated with the language of Christianity, the word grace was actually commonly just used to describe a couple of things. One of which is uh, kind of interesting and a little bit comical. One of the ways that this word for grace is used in the kind of pre-Christian world is really to describe the charm of a woman, okay? The charm of a woman, uh, so, so a gracious woman would have had to do with her ability to be charming to men in particular, all right? That's not how we mean it as Christians, but understand that that's part of the, the background of this word. But the other common usage of the word grace in, in sort of pre-Christian context was in reference to a person's speech, Okay, To call someone full of grace was a way to say that their speech is full of beauty, winsomeness, rhythm, elegance, whatever you want to say, that they're a good orator. And all of this is what we see here in Stephen, that that description of grace fits here as well. So full of grace uh, is talking about Stephen possessing a character that's touching those who don't even know the source of his grace. Now think about that when it comes to your life around people who don't know Jesus. Are you a person who could be described in a similar way as full of grace? Are your words winsome? Do you have that sort of character around? Remember when they were chosen last week, they were men of good repute. They had a reputation worth having. So we said last week that being full of the Spirit, it's not a sign of someone who's like at super Christian level. Right? Being full of grace, I think, is similar. It's not something that should be the outlier, 
Well, when we're talking with, when we're walking with Jesus and we're experiencing his grace to us, it's his words that just, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when you're walking, you're in one of those seasons where you're walking with Jesus in a way that, you know, you know what I mean if you've experienced it. Those seasons where you just, your walk with Jesus is just really in a good place. His words just kind of tumble out of you as you live around people who don't know him. And when you've experienced those times when you've kind of walked away from Jesus a little bit, you've gotten dry, then you notice that your speech isn't filled with grace like it could be. And so the reality is that this is how the church grows no matter where you look in church history. And it will be how our church grows as well. It'll be by the grace, this kind of grace of Jesus that each of us walks in that ends up just kind of an informal and in normal conversation spilling out onto the people around us, even people that are opposed to us, as we see with Stephen here. It'll be us walking with Jesus, filled with grace, and those words spilling out onto the people around us, and that's how people hear about Jesus, even if, like Stephen, they don't realize that the grace they see in us isn't even ours, that we're just a vehicle for this grace. Look at verse 15 and think about the, the impression that Stephen leaves on this council. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. No one has ever said that about me. No one's ever said his face was like an angel. Well, maybe my mom when I was a baby. But this is speaking to this kind of unexplainable calm that apparently Stephen had in that moment. Again, set the scene. This is like, I know this is just words on a page to us, but this council, this Sanhedrin, if you're Stephen, this is scary. This is life and death. This is a powerful council acting in unlawful ways against you. Right? This is like state-sponsored terrorism against you. That's what's going on here. That they're actually breaking the law they claim to uphold because they're so against you. And you somehow are full of grace and power in the face of that. This is a manifestation of a peace that passes understanding. This is what is so winsome about Stephen, right? Like if you are there witnessing this, don't you want to know why this man or how this man is so full of this grace? And so through the grace of God, then Stephen possesses a winsomeness just like Jesus. Now, surely, Jesus was abrasive sometimes. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't tame Jesus. But Jesus is also very winsome. And here, Stephen is possessing a winsomeness like he saw or like we see in Jesus. And the reality is that God's grace can accomplish the same thing in you if you walk with him. The book of Acts isn't meant to be stories of like the extra super Christians who we can never be like, right? This is a book filled with Christian experience. John Wesley said, one of the advantages of the grace of God is that it makes a man a gentleman without the aid of a dancing master. Now, I know that was like, what? I had to read it a couple times too. This is what it means. Grace changes us, but not in a forced outside kind of way. Not in a way where the dance instructor says, and five, six, seven, right? It changes us, not in a forced outside kind of way. Grace changes us from the inside out 
in a way that sometimes seems unexplainable to people who know us. You, you should, after you've walked with Jesus for a long time, be unrecognizable to people sometimes. Like you should be a different kind of person than you were five years ago when you've been walking with Jesus. Imagine what it would look like for your family, your coworkers, those people in your neighborhood to describe you as full of grace. What would that look like for those relationships? But now in verse 8, we see that Stephen, he's also described as a man who shares in, in a power, not from himself. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so if we go back a little bit in Acts, we see in Acts 2.22 some similar words about Jesus himself, Jesus Christ. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. And so as we continue on here in Acts, we're going to see Stephen preach a sermon that's going to be a powerful part of this holy moment here in Acts, if you will. His sermon is going to be a crushing blow to this council that he's in front of that they simply can't deal with it. They don't know, they can't deal with it. And so we're going to see that they resort to kind of the only thing that they can, which is violence, basically. That's, that's what happens here. And so this speech, this sermon from Stephen, comes with a mighty power, but it's not Stephen's power. right? We read these stories and we think, oh, well, he was just really good at this. No, he's empowered by the Spirit, the Spirit that was promised to him and to you and to me and to all those who follow Jesus back in Acts chapter 1. Right? What does Jesus say to the disciples? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And if you know and you love Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you have received power. You might not be walking in it, and I know that freaks some of us out. It freaks me out a little bit, but that's what the scriptures say. So not only do we see Stephen described as being full of grace and full of power, but what we also see from this story, even as it'll carry on into next week, is that one of the things that's being filled with God's grace, one of the things that being filled with God's grace and power brings to Stephen is a kind of perseverance that's, that's really beautiful here to see. As we get to, to next week, as we said, we'll, we'll see violence break out, and we'll, we'll basically see this man be torn limb from limb. This is one of those stories in the Bible that we read, and we're like, oh, man, that's bad. But imagine if this got videotaped and put on social media today, right? This is a wild scene. It would have that censor thing over it. It would be pulled, right? It, it, this is violent, what happens here. But what we will see is that when the mob does what mobs do, he was just like Jesus, that Stephen somehow, in the midst of all of this falsehood and all of this instigation against him and all this stuff going on, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't revile those who are doing this injustice to him. He's simply full of grace and power. One commentator said that he was, he was never taller than when he was on his knees in Acts 7.60. And, and so this grace and this power from Jesus enables you to do things that you shouldn't be able to do. 
Jesus himself would say in the Gospels that with man, it is impossible. With mankind in and of ourselves, it is impossible. And in our context here today, it is impossible not to lash out, even just in your heart, at those who are unjustly accusing you. It is impossible not to hate those who have lied about you and stirred others up against you. It is impossible not to have hatred in your heart toward those who violently attack you. But Jesus would say that with God, all things are possible. And the beauty of Jesus is that in Jesus, you are always with God because in Jesus, God is always with you. And so if God is with you, like he is with Stephen, then all things are possible. If God is with you and his grace and his power are with you, and they are if you are a Christian, right? Understand that they are, then all things are possible. Whatever that situation is that the Holy Spirit might be bringing to your mind right now that you think is impossible, we look at a story like this and we say, man, when we're filled with the power of the Spirit, all things are possible. If God is with us, then this story of Stephen is not the exception in terms of God's power being with someone. But we also see that not only is Stephen full of grace and he's full of power and that he's persevering because of that grace and that power and all this, but in the midst of this, he's also showing just wisdom that doesn't seem to be coming from a person. That there is a wisdom from God that that's, that's just seems outside of someone's ability. Look at verse 10. But they, this council, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, the scriptures use the word wisdom in a few different ways. But here in this spot in Acts, what we see is that this word that gets translated as wisdom, it's going to carry the idea of insight. Okay, This is the same as when we see this word in Ephesians 1 where Paul prays the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That there's this, this revelatory insight, insightfulness to this kind of wisdom. So what we see back here in Acts is that God had given Stephen a discerning mind and spiritual insight. And I want to, again, I want to just point this out to you. This is the norm. This is just describing a Christian person. Because I think when we read these stories, we get discouraged. Oh, I'm not wise like that. Oh, I'm not winsome like that. Oh, I'm not full of power and grace like that. I'm just me. No, you're not just you. If you're a Christian, you is dead and you've been raised with Christ. And so God has insight for you as well. God has given you a mind that he wants you to exercise and renew, right? Paul says renew that mind. He wants you to exercise this by thinking on pondering the deep realities of the gospel and his goodness and his beauty. And evidently, Stephen had been doing this. This is how he becomes full of grace and power and how we see this wisdom. So we see this grace and power and perseverance and wisdom in Stephen's life. And we keep saying that those are normal for the Christian life, right? That this, if, you, if we could believe this, imagine the power we would walk in. But now... Here's where this all leads to for me. As we wrap this up, we also have to deal with this other reality, and this is the one that we likely struggle with the most as we relate to this story. We like that grace and power and winsomeness and wisdom. I love all that stuff. But here it is. The backdrop for all this grace and power and wisdom is the reality that Stephen is sharing in the rejection of Jesus. That's the backdrop. And you don't get one without the other. 
Listen to verses 11 to 14 again. They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against, the Mo- against Moses and God. This is a false accusation against him of the most serious order. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, now understand the steps that have had to take place for this to happen. People have had to tell lies, convince other people to to play a part in that. They have to go and grab this guy, bring him to this council, and they have to convince other people to, to do false testimony against him. This is how against Stephen they are. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And there's a part of me when I read that, it's like, it's too late, guys. He did that already, right? So just as we've said that all these positive attributes we see on display are what we should expect as the norm for the Christian life, right? You you can feel what's coming, right? So too we should expect the norm of suffering and rejection with Jesus. Jesus said, if they treat me like this, How are they going to treat you? How do you expect to be treated? Stephen is walking in that reality here. Now, you may not be put before a council and martyred. But when you read this passage, you can can just kind of smell the death that's in it. The decay, the lies, the falsehood. And at this point in this text, right, Stephen might as well already be in the ground. He's as good as dead here. If you remember the text from last week, he's one of the seven Hellenistic or Greek-speaking and and here immigrant Jews enlisted to serve the widows who are being forgotten in the distribution of food to those in need. That's the institution of what we call deacons now. And what we said was that the Hellenistic, those Greek-speaking Jews, are not popular in Jerusalem. Xenophobia, alive and well, here in the Bible. The, The fear of the other, that's what they are. They're seen as outsiders. They're seen as sort of second class. And so they ended up having their own synagogues where they could worship in peace without, honestly, the racism they would normally face. That's, what's, that's why they have their own synagogue. So we have to understand that Stephen's Hellenistic synagogue would have had a high interest in not stirring things up. We don't want attention. Don't make waves for us, you seven guys that are Hellenistic. They just want to keep their heads down. They want to be left alone to worship in peace. And now Stephen is part of this new sect called The Way that's making all kinds of waves in Jerusalem. And so these seven Hellenistic Jews become Christians, of which Stephen is a part. And they get chosen to not only be part of this new thing, but to lead part of this new thing. And so Stephen becomes basically too hot to handle. And so it's the Hellenistic Jews who deliver him to this council. Listen again to verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. That's a particular group of Hellenists. And of the Cyrenians, another group. And of the Alexandrians, and of those of Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. They don't want to be part of this. We don't want to be associated with this thing. And so they go even further, and they're secretly going to bring false charges of blasphemy against him, right? They're Jews. 
So they're bringing false charges of blasphemy in verse 11. And so it's important to remember, remember this. This court, this council is the same group that convicted Jesus. It's the same high priest. So the outcome is going to be the same. Right? If you're Stephen and you get dragged in front of this council, this court, you know that you're basically as good as dead because those words are ringing true. If they did this to me, what will they do to you? But, but here's what Stephen knew that you and I have to know as well as we follow Jesus. Here's what's at the bedrock of, of I think, Stephen's faith that gives him the ability to be filled with grace and power. Stephen knows what you and I need to know, that you, if you follow Jesus, you are already dead and raised. This is why, for Stephen, he's not afraid. He knows that in Christ, he's already been crucified with him and raised to new life. So what can anyone do? Kill me? I'm already dead. I'm already dead and raised in Christ. So now, all the suffering and the rejection that I face in this life because of Jesus is simply a backdrop to display and walk in the grace and the power of the resurrection of Jesus, whose spirit is now at work in me. We read these stories and we want the grace and the power, but, but friends, the Bible keeps telling us over and over, we don't get the grace and the power without the suffering. We just don't. You want resurrection power? You want to be raised to new life in Christ? You will be raised to new life in Christ, provided that you suffer also with him, And I think Stephen is giving us this great example. See, suffering and maybe even suffering unto death is the backdrop where the grace and the power and the perseverance. And in this narrative and act, it's the backdrop upon which God explodes the church. The wisdom of God, all those things, the grace, the power, the perseverance, the wisdom, they're all on display to this world that God, through Christ, is making new by his power. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for these stories, and I just pray that we would see them as not some outlier for us to, to just look at as a story in an old book that doesn't mean anything to us, but to see them as, wow, th this is what the Christian life is like. I want this life. I want to operate in, in grace and power. I want to be known for that in my circles. But, but Jesus, if that means I have to suffer with you while you're making things new here, then, then Lord, lead me. Lord, may that be our heart's prayer as we go out into the world. Not that we go out looking for ways to, to, to get ourselves into bad situations, but just going out, not being surprised when those things happen. You told us, that life here was going to be hard. You've always been honest with us. And so, Lord, we ask for your strength. We, we don't ask you to take the suffering away, but we ask for you to be with us in the middle of it like you were with the three in the fiery furnace. Lord, would you give us, as we walk into whatever the suffering situations we find ourselves in, in those holy moments in our lives, would you give us strength by just being with us as you were with Stephen this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.